lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I want to put a tag on today's message, divine worship. Father, we thank you this, this wonderful morning, oh God. Um, beautiful melody, beautiful lyrics, beautiful place, um, beautiful ministry. Lord, we just pray right now that you would freshen our hearts, that you would uh, quicken our, our inner man, uh, as Paul would say, that's being renewed day by day, that you will help us to be vessels of honorable use for your service. Pray, Father, that you would uh, speak to us today, speak to us this week. I don't know the, the challenges we've all have um, gotten away from back home just to come here, but Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be still and know that you are God. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, listen and learn what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, my mother, um, growing up, as I was driving here, I, I, I thought about this, uh, she, she was notorious for uh, signing us up for stuff without telling us, without even asking us. Like, you're going to this camp. Well, who are, the, who are they? You'll figure that out. You're going to this camp at this particular time. I remember at, when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, we had spring break was for two weeks. I'm thinking, hey, I'm going home. I'm about to relax, hang out with some of my buddies I grew up with. It's going to be a great day. I talked to my mother. She says, oh, no, you're not coming here for two weeks doing nothing. You're going to spend time doing ministry for one week, and then you'll come here for another week. You have any problems with that? No, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. My mother was notorious for signing, signing me up, signing all of us up for camps. But I tell you what, every single time that she did that, part of me was like, ah, oh, kind of sad because I'm like, I wanted to do this. But every time I went to those camps, I promise you, it impacted my life. In fact, I remember um, spending a summer in the city project with Campus Crusade for Christ after my freshman year at Moody that my mother signed me up for. Never spent a summer at home in college, you know, in college uh, season. But I never forget after that first summer, because of my mom giving that opportunity for me, I came back to Moody and ended up changing my major because of what God did in my heart. I say that to get us to think that God wants to impact and imprint all of us. There's nothing random with God. God has brought us here. Yet again, woke us up this morning to give us an encounter with him. That encounter is worship. And we all know that worship is not just singing. Praise God for singing. Praise God for melodies. God loves to hear new songs. In fact, heaven's going to be a big old praise party. So we might as well get our praise party on now, on our way to glory. But in the words of Henry Blackaby, worship is not just uh, singing, but it's also obedience. That as I live my life, as I walk with God, I am worshiping him. Because God wants to imprint and impact our lives. He wants to give us experiences. So there's this beautiful divine encounter in the book of Isaiah. 
you like to take notes this morning, as we come to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, I want to lift up this thought, this thesis statement, if you will, that true worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. True worship, true authentic worship of our great God is an ongoing, life-changing experience. So I want to share with you this morning three main thoughts, three dominant things that we learn about worship. The first thought is this, that worship is an upward look. Somebody say upward. Worship is an upward look. The, the Bible opens up in verse 1 and says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Interesting. Israel is surrounded by the Assyrian army in context. They are surrounded by the enemy. In 2 Chronicles 26, we learn that God raises up Uzziah, who reigned for over 50 years. God used this great king to, to, to subdue and bring peace to the land of Israel. However, pride crept up in Brother Uzziah's life. He thought he was too sexy for his shirt. God warned him. He didn't turn. So God said, give him back my breath. So now you got Israel smack dab surrounded by the Assyrian army. God uses this great king to be to bring about peace and prosperity. He has a little arrogant problem. God takes him. So now what do you do now as you're just a, another Jew in the land of Israel? Now your king is dead. What do you do when your leader's now gone? You know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's in times of great prosperity and fruitfulness where it's easy for us to forget about God. It's easy to forget. And oftentimes when God wants to get our attention, he sends pandemic. He shakes the foundations of our lives. He allows Uzziah to die, not to pick at us, but to wake us up. More on that a little bit later this week. But Uzziah dies. And I love this line. Here you have a crisis and the death of Uzziah. And yet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Wow. A crisis and a problem, but I saw the Lord. A circumstance that if you're looking at the issue more than God, then yeah, you're going to panic. But yet he says, I saw the Lord. Now we know theologically that he did not see God the Father. For the Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Don't think about that too much. We heard it explained. 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light? whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So who does Isaiah see? Well, Jesus bears witness of this in John 12, 41. He sees the pre-incarnate Christ on the throne. Now, notice some of the descriptions we see in our passage. He says, in the year the king was eyes out, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Interesting. He saw his majesty. The Bible says he was sitting upon a throne. 
or seated on a throne, which is a beautiful picture. Theologians would call this the sovereignty of God. Aren't you glad that God is sovereign? That God's not pasting the throne room of heaven, taking Tylenol on the chaotic nature that's happening in our world. I love what one preacher says. He says that God runs the universe with his feet up. That he's calm, that he's cool, and that he's collected. That nothing takes him off guard. He's not nervous. He does not get anxious. He does not worry. He's God all by himself. He's seated on the throne. It's always majesty. And because that God is on the throne, we need to rest easy in him. So he saw the Lord. He saw his majesty. But notice another big word here. He saw his transcendence. The text says, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. If you go over to verse 4, the Bible says that the house was filled with smoke. Now think about that for a moment. Theologians would call this transcendence. Transcendence. What, what does this even mean? Listen to this wonderful definition. This idea of transcendence means that God exists apart from the creation that he made. And thus above space and time. God is not in any way dependent upon his creation. He is self-existing, that is. He draws his own existence only from himself. He is absolute. Somebody say amen. So when we see the transcendence of God, I want us to understand that God's authority is not equal to any earthly authority. His kingdom is everlasting kingdom. And God's authority is always above the nations, for he's God. He says, I saw his majesty, I saw his transcendence, but here's the big one as well. He saw his holiness. In verse 2, we, we understand, we see very clearly this, this idea of a seraphim. These are seraphim, it's the word that means burning ones. They, they tended to the Lord, but what blows my mind is the description of these angels. They had six wings, six. And we know nothing's random with God. Everything's intentional how he's created his creation, how he's created us. Notice, firstly, they had two wings that covered their face, that covered his face. Some scholars think that this is an indication of humility. Think about this. Not even angels can look at him and worship. Think about that. Not even the seraphim, who has no sin, can look at him and live. So, he has two wings intentionally covering his face. But then the other set of wings covered his feet. One scholar made an observation that he thinks this might denote service to God with a holy approach. That I'm just not serving some bellhop in the sky. I, I, I'm not ser serving some guy down the street. I'm serving the ancient of days who is seated on a throne. I need to cover my face. I need to cover my feet. But then it also says, with two wings, he flew. This is the idea of ongoing activity, proclaiming God's holiness and God's glory. 
so they have an anthem, they have a song that they sing, they have a phrase that they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holiness is used more than 800 times in the Bible. More than 800 times in the Bible. It speaks of God's absolute moral purity that our human finite minds cannot fully understand and grasp the holiness of God. We can't even look at the sun for two seconds without turning away. What makes us think we can look at him and live? He's holy. And what's interesting here, it's not just one time he says that word. If my mama called my name once, okay, I should answer. But when my mama calls my name twice, three times, oh, I know if I don't answer, it's going to be a come to Jesus meeting. The emphasis here is on purpose. Every word in the Bible is intentional, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what the angels want us to see is that God is not like us. He's pure and he's holy and he's righteous. His record is a billion and zero. He doesn't lose. He's holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. What a song, what a statement, what an emphasis. Numbers 14 verse 12 says, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And that's why the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. This is a very powerful indication of the presence and power of God. Eugene Peterson had a wonderful quote that I want to share with you. He says that worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Daniel Boomin also makes this observation. He says that worship is a stairway on which there is movement in two directions. God comes to man and man goes to God. You see, the reason why we should gather together and worship, whether in a setting like this or on a Sunday morning or with our families or with fellow believers is to experience the presence of God. If God does not show up, we are a bunch of religious people with no power. It's the presence of God that reconciles marriages. It's the presence of God that saves the lost soul. It's the presence of God that breaks a stronghold. Did not Moses say, are we not distinct, Lord, if you go with us? But if you don't, we don't want to go. It's the presence of God that's the game changer. It's the presence of God that's the game changer. And so we learn from this first scene that worship is an upward look. It beholds God in his rightful place. Everything changes when we take our eyes off of our circumstances and put it on our great God. Somebody said that if we... <laughs> magnify our problems, our God becomes small. But when we magnify our God, our problems become small. Worship is an upward look. But if we're really worshiping God, if we're really walking with him, it also not only is an upward look, it, it's also an inward look. That's the second reality I want to share with you. It's an inward look. Notice verse 5. Uh, Isaiah says, okay, and I said, woe is me. 
For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, whoa, 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 a statement of utter urgency. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's amazing. I, I, I would encourage all of us to maybe do a, a study or a devotional or something uh, on your own time on, on the encounters of God in the Bible. It's amazing the consistency. When somebody encounters God, they are immediately gripped with their own sin. Uh, Job saw the Lord and, rep and he repented. Job 42, verse 6. This is what Job said when he saw the Lord. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter, who experienced God in Luke 5, 8 says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. John, when he saw the glory of the Lord in Revelation 1, verse 17a, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's holy. I'm dirty. He's awesome. By the way, I think we should reserve some words just for God. Okay, I, your car is not awesome. Even though I love my iPad, it's not awesome. Awesome means to be awestruck. He sees the holiness of God. He's awesome, I'm not. He's good, I'm not. Woe is me. That's why he says, for I am lost. You know what it means to be lost? It means to be completely cut off. That apart from the intervention of God, there's nothing I could do to save myself. I'm lost. I'm lost. But not only that, he says I'm filthy. So I'm not only in a helpless place, I'm also dirty. He says, for I'm a man of unclean lips. The idea here is that uh, my attitude and my actions are just contaminated with sin. Everything about me is contaminated with sin. <laughs> and I love this. He throws everybody else under the bus as well. I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Everybody's jacked up. We have a sin problem up in here, up in here, up in here. Now, why would Isaiah say these things? It's really simple. Because he saw the holiness of God. You see, it's easy, it's easy, it's so easy to make ourselves look good when we compare ourselves to somebody else. You know, our peers. And we all can make ourselves look good. But when I stop and think and compare myself to a holy God, I can't stand. And I find myself in agreement. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm in a hopeless place. And I live in the midst of a people that's in a hopeless place. I'm on this train about talking about my mother, so let me just keep on going. My mother gave us uh, chores growing up, and one of the first chores I had to learn was washing dishes. Not, not in the dishwashing ministry, you know, to put it in there and 
No, I'm talking about actually washing dishes. Something my kids look at us like we crazy when we say, this is actually how you do it. Dishwashers are great. You don't say amen. But you got to learn this other tool just in case that don't work for you. We're trying to equip them for life. Hello, somebody. But I remember when I first started learning washing dishes, uh, I came across my first level of adversity. It was a pan that had all this crud in it. And here I am, seven, eight years old, just trying to scrub. And it's not coming off, Mom. It's not coming off. She says, boy, put it down. Let me show you. Walks over to the sink and turns on a little bit of hot water. She puts the, the pan that had all that crud in there, in, in there, and she fills it up, and she mixes in some dish liquid, and she says, just let it sit, finish the rest of the dish. I said, okay, so I'm finished the rest of the dishes. About 20 minutes later, she comes back, calls me back to the pan. She says, now watch this. She pours it all out, takes a little rag, and with ease, just the crud just came off. She went on to explain to me, and she says, you know what? There's certain types of stuff that you come across when you're washing dishes where it needs a little bit more marination. Your human effort, your human ability is not going to be able to take this off. You need something else to help you get this off. And that's what sin does to us. We have this thing so caked up within our fabric of our, in our being. We, we have this problem that we cannot fix. But what worship does is, is that when I sit, and as Jesus would say in John 15, as I abide in his presence, the things that used to control my life begin to loosen up because of the power of God that's resting within my heart. But I cannot experience the victory unless I abide in his presence. Could it be that we're not experiencing God at a deeper level? Could it be because we are harvesting unrepentant sin in our hearts? And there's a verse in the Bible that scares me. It scares me, and I pray that it keeps scaring me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Bible says, the Lord will not hear me. So, let me throw out some questions of reflection. What I'm sharing with you, these are things that the Holy Spirit has taken me to the woodshed on as well. So we're all on this journey together. Here's a question. Do I examine my heart on a regular basis? Psalm 139, David would say, Lord, search me and know me. I don't even know myself. Search me. Here's another question. Is my response to the Lord in worship casual or with a holy reverence to him? Am I really reflecting, for example, in, in context of singing, am I really reflecting on what's being said or am I just going through the motions? Does my own sin grieve me? You do realize that many of us probably have calluses. Calluses, at one point, they were tender. You had that, that sense of feeling that, that, that it hurt. But after a while, hardness sets in and you lost your ability to see it. Does our sin grieve us or have we developed spiritual calluses? And what used to bring us to our knees no longer brings us to our knees because it no longer grieves us. Do I respond to the Lord when I'm shown my sin? You know, self-reflection is always a great thing. It's always a great thing. 
And I pray that we all stay in that posture. That worship is an upward look, but it's also inward. That I need to constantly evaluate and search. Which is why we need to constantly develop a habit of daily communing with the Father so we can keep short account of our sin, so we can keep an open line of communication, so that we can dig deep and abide in His presence, so that we can learn to walk in the victory that He's already given to us in Christ. And so worship is an upward look. Worship is an inward look. But thirdly and finally, worship experiences God's grace. I love this. Worship experiences God's grace. So Isaiah, he sees the Lord. He's impacted by the holiness of God. Then he looks at himself. I'm dirty. I'm messed up. And I'm in a land filled with people who are dirty and messed up. But notice, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. It's a beautiful picture here of purification. Let this bless you. God took the initiative. Did you get that? Angels don't just do what they want to do. No. God gave him this experience, and God's commanding the seraphim to go and purify him. God's the one taking the initiative, and that's the beauty of the cross. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative on a rescue mission for you and me. So, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God takes the initiative. He touches his mouth is a picture of, of, of cleansing and purification. And what I love about it is this. God doesn't just cleanse us so that we can just not only be right with him, but he cleanses us also to be used by him. God gives you encounters with him, yes, to let us see him for who he is, but he also wants to use your life as a vessel, an instrument of grace towards others. And that's a beautiful picture of worship, that God does the surgery. As we lift our hands, as we sing the songs, as, we, as we're walking together, as we're doing life together, as we're in communion with the, with the body of believers, God does the amazing things in the hearts. Which is why I'm captivated by these redwood trees. Why am I? My, wife, my daughter and I were walking uh, yesterday, a little daughter, and we're just walking around, walking around. Man, she just, it's hard to go up to me, man. Redwood trees, many of them are, are in clusters. Read somewhere that the reason why they're so strong is because beneath the surface their root system is deep. We're always stronger when we're together than we are independent of each other. There's a reason why we should be gathering and, and doing life with one another because there's strength in that and God's at work in that. That's all I want you to see. It's the grace of God. 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 That's what worship does. <laughs> all because of his grace. God takes the initiative. God cleanses us. God gives us experiences so that we can be better vessels and fruitful vessels for his kingdom. So where do we go give you three closing thoughts here on this wonderful passage, wonderful encounter in scripture. 
Number one, we need to identify what has gotten in the way of our relationship with God. What I have found, I can't speak for you, what I have found personally, I don't have to pray too long to figure that one out. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What has gotten in the way? Who has gotten in the way? Second thought. Make worship the central priority. This is personally with my walk with God and corporately. We were created to worship. By the way, everybody on this planet worships. The question is, who do we worship? Right? We have to, as believers, make worship the central priority. Because everything else flows from our walk with God. Everything else flows or should flow from that. I was told at church back in, um, back in uh, Vegas, we cannot afford to go to Bedside Baptist where Pastor Pillow is your pastor. We need, we need to worship God. So we make worship the central priority. We need to identify what has gotten away of our relationship. But really, and thirdly and finally, we need to be missional. We need to be missional. Honestly, this could have been another, this could have been another sermon point because if you drop your eye down to verse 8, it says, he says this, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? See, worship is missional. God doesn't want us to, to hoard the experience. He wants you to be missional about the experience. I first started preaching, my mother, there she is again, she used to always say, she, she said, she, I'll never forget this, she used to always say, if you're in the word, you always have something to say. Preach sister, bitch. If you're in the word, you always have something to say. And, and, and again, if we're in God's presence, we'll always have something to say. We'll learn and we'll, we'll, we'll grow and, we'll, and our spiritual discernment and our ears will be, will be attentive to what he's saying because we're constantly here in his presence and now we're being missional with what he's doing in our lives. So, true worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. So I want to encourage us to look up, look in, bask in God's grace, Father, we thank you for this divine encounter in your word. We thank you for this wonderful opportunity to lean in to what you have had to say. And Lord, we do pray that as we all are on this journey together, none of us is perfect. We all have our various challenges and adversities, just things that we, we just deal with. Life is hard and easy. But may we find comfort in that truth that he also said, that you have overcome the world. So no matter what we're facing, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we, we lean into who you are. Thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of the chaos in our world, you're on the throne. Help us to look to you and not, not be consumed with the circumstances around us. I know that's, that's a challenge at times because... We deal with anxiety, we deal with worry, and we have to constantly need the Holy Spirit to push us to the altar, push us 
to who you are. So, Father, we pray that as we begin our day today and as we go throughout this week, Lord willing, that you would help us keep looking up, keep looking up, keep looking up. We see that, Lord, and we all say your grace that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't this a rich start? Thank you, Tim. Such a joy to hear you preach for the first time. To see you on YouTube and all those videos, make sure that we're, you know, wanted you to come and all that. This is wonderful. This is great. He's telling lots of stories about his mom. 